you can solve a number of memory bottleneck issues because now you you open up the space to attach memory type, different memory types on the CXL bus. That's the that's the technical strength of CXL. On this episode, the insiders ponder the future of embedded engineering in light of ARM's recent release of its total solutions for IoT. How far along in the development process can engineers get virtually before they even have silicon in their hands? Next, Brandon Rich and guest speakers Kurt Lender and Ishwar Agarwal from the CXL Consortium get into the nitty-gritty of what Compute Express Link is, how it works, and what its future holds. Finally, Associate Editor Tierra Oliver enters the software development lifecycle where, according to survey responses from Practitest's ninth annual State of Testing report, software testers in the field are reporting big changes that are paving the way for newer, more integrated testing dynamics. Hello and welcome to the Embedded Insiders. I'm Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design. I'm here with Rich Nass, who is the Executive Vice President and Brand Director of Embedded Computing Design. How are you doing, Rich? I'm doing just fine. Yourself? I'm doing okay. It's uh, summer in the city, and when it's summer in this city, that is time to get out of Dodge. Yeah, it's summer in our city as well. You know, we have lower temperature, higher humidity than you, which probably results in about the same. Yeah rolled in this week so what's up in the world of embedded well lots as usual but in particular arm um not of nvidia uh arm of softlink still had some pretty big announcements uh at the end of last month uh, most notably around total solutions for iot are you familiar with that I am peripherally familiar with that. I'm very familiar with the concept, but maybe not so much what ARM specifically is doing. Walk me through it. Sure, I'll fill everybody in. So more or less the total solutions that ARM is offering, um, they've created these, these subsystems for Cortex-M and A devices that essentially they're providing you know, virtual models of. You know, they're also providing a lot of tools around that and some reference designs for specific end uses like voice recognition, et cetera. So the skinny is here. You get a virtual model. I think they also have some sort of partnership with uh, AWS where you can program or or enter an environment via the cloud, start working with this virtual model, um, you know, have all of your software and tools there, you know, some of the Simpsons stuff, and then start taking advantage of some of these out-of-the-box algorithms or, or, you know, whatever else you would need at that application level. That's fine. And if I understand what you said properly, um, which I probably don't because I usually misinterpret. But um, at the core arm, that's fine. But you're you're not dealing with a core arm. You're dealing with an XP arm or an ST arm or a Renaissance arm. And there's different quirks about how everybody does these things. Then they do them differently. And they each put in their own secret sauce to handle all the things that you talked about. So sounds like we're dealing in a perfect world and we don't design in a perfect world. So that said... All right, go ahead, comment, and then I'll put in the rest of it. Sure. So uh, some of the designs that are up there, some of the IP that's virtual here is Cortex-M33s, and they do integrate libraries from partners. So they've got NXP libraries and ST libraries, and even I think in this this latest announcement, they announced that some some Raspberry Pi stuff is going to be available there as part of this package as well. Okay, 
so part two for me is um, I hate designing in a vacuum where uh, you're not um, in, in a real world environment because things happen in the real world that are not accounted for when you, when you design virtually. Um, it tends to not operate the same in a real world than it does in, in the, even in the lab. I mean, even when you're using real hardware, you're, you're at um, not at altitude, not at humidity, not at a certain temperature, there's no shotgun vibration. It's just different in a real world than it is in a test tube. Yeah, and, and I would tend to agree with you. And, you know, here, the thing is, this is sort of a continuation of a lot of trends that we've seen. And, you know, for better or for worse, this is developed, you know, this is designed for application software developers, right? It's not, you know, I guess in theory, you could use it if you're a firmware engineer or, you know, or, you know some other you know, quality or test. But this is really, you know, that whole hardware software co-design uh, concept where it's allowing a program, a, a so, an application software developer to get a head start before they have silicon available. And that is totally fine. But it goes back to another concept that we've been dealing with for a long, long time, which is, does this mean that embedded engineering is, is you know, in its death rattle? Because you have all, I mean, this is, it, they've got these targets that are Cortex-Ms I mentioned too. You know, there are also some Cortex-As, but Cortex-Ms, this is embedded processing defined right that is what cortex m is for but obviously this this uh development environment stuff that we're seeing with total solutions for iot and uh, of course many many others you know, people who are developing containers etc that is all cloud enterprise developer stuff right real embedded engineers don't develop like that so where are we are we are we sort of done with the the old way of hey you know what i'm gonna write I'm going to write code for this this board that's right here next to me on my desk. And until we get to the point where we have AI involved and it's writing the code for us, there's still a place for the embedded developer. This is going to have to eventually come back to your desk at some point, right? Even if you are just writing the application software. Yep, absolutely. And the people producing the chips are constantly moving ahead and adding new features and there's, it's a it's a never-ending, I was going to say game, it's a never-ending battle to just keep up with what's available at, at your disposal. So if you were starting today, would you start with, uh, would you wait for the silicon or would you start out with something like this? I would start out with something like this because of how long it takes to develop. Right. This gets you pretty far down the road. Mm. It doesn't, doesn't get you 100%, absolutely not. And if anybody tells you that, then I would say that they're lying to you, but it but does give you a good head start. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's sort of what it boils down to. I, I do think that this is convenient from the perspective that you're going to be able to get 85, 90% of the way there. Um, but man, just moving further and further away from developing a real thing right there next to you and dealing with all the things you mentioned before, you know, accounting for some of that humidity, the shock and vibe, you know, the after you take a cold shower and you're still sweating, all that real world stuff. And that could have some impact on, on how you develop at the beginning of your uh, design. Right. But at least this gives you a, gives you a way to get, get ahead. Yeah. But I'd also say you threw out 85 to 90%. I think that would be irresponsible of 
of a of a designer to think that it would take them that far. I think if if you said forty or fifty percent, um, you're setting the bar low enough. If it gets you further, great. But I think that's where you need to be. The whole point of this total solutions thing is, I mean, they have, like I mentioned, they have these reference designs that are part of this that are are literally trying to get you in like way down into your end application. You know, here's the basis of the you know, total solutions for voice recognition is what I'm looking at right now. You know, here's everything you need um, to develop a smart speaker or a smart thermostat or, you know, anything that uses voice rec. So then I think- you get into the product differentiation discussion. How mm-hmm. is mine different from yours? If, if, if the first 90% is exactly the same, mine's blue and yours is red. Well, right. And I think, I think maybe, you know, maybe stating it again more clearly, if this stack has all of that in it, right. And you're that far along, or you're able to get that far that quickly, then a lot of the things that you would want to be, that you would think that you would be engineering at that point are a lot of those real world things, right? Accounting for, you know, where's your thing, where's your device going to be deployed? You You can't account for a voice recognition system that the differences between deploying it in a, you know, necessarily a, a kitchen versus a factory, right? Without mm-hmm. having some real world, you know, use cases there. Yep, absolutely. So thumbs up or thumbs down on this? Oh, I'm thumbs up for sure. I know I sort of come across as as the bad cop and being the naysayer, but, um, but I'm definitely thumbs up. You're still unfortunately going to have to deal with that. Plug into the, the JTAG port, get your hands dirty a little bit with something real, but um, yeah. And deal with analog. Remember that? Analog. <laughs> Next, Brandon and Rich are joined by Kurt Lunder, CXL Consortium MWG co-chair and senior ecosystem enabling manager of Intel Corporation's data center group, and Ishwar Agarwal, principal hardware engineer at Microsoft and CXL Consortium technical task force co-chair. Various points throughout the history of computing, you know, the, the limiting factor has either been, you know, that the memory or the or the I.O. Um, or, and yeah, I guess technically you could say the compute, but, you know, the memory or the I.O. really one of those two things has been has limited the progression. You know, what's what's the driving force behind the need for something like CXL right now? So, yeah, in my many years, we've always had that triad of, of compute, memory and I.O., um, and with, I, I could kid that none of them are up to par today, um, you know, with the, the thirst that the industry has for compute power right now. But the proliferation of cloud, AI, and analytics, the growth of the network and edge really have put pressures on looking for a next generation interconnect and also for increased um, memory bandwidth and capacity. So. Um, those are trends that aren't going away, um, and CXL helps uh, there by bringing basically an industry standard. So again, Ishwar can look, you know, across multiple platforms, multiple CPUs, right? And we bring a coherent interface with three mix and match protocols, low latency, um, and again, it's actually CXL will help on both the I/O front, feeding the CPU. Plus, also, it brings a new connect uh, connection point for memory, so it will help in that um, memory bandwidth and capacity um, and scaling also. What's the origin story behind 
you know, CXL, how it got started, how long it's been around. It's, it's actually fairly recent, especially if you're calculating things in COVID time. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so um, CXL, there was, if you look at all those pressure points I just mentioned with the, with the growth of cloud and so on and so forth, um, if you go back into the 2019-ish, right before COVID timeframe, the industry saw the need, you know, there was really a, a push for getting a new IO interconnect out there. Um, really 10 powerhouses got together. Um, we had top, uh, the four CPU vendors get together. We had OEMs, um, cloud manufacturers, um, basically get together and ratify the 1.0 specification and also start the consortium. So really this is when the work started on 2.0 and the expansion um, and unification of, of some different uh, standardization efforts that were out there. Um, I will mention that, you know, you're seeing some of the, the fruits of that now or Gen Z, which was one of those standards out there, contributed their specifications to CXL at the end of last year. So uh, again, that's a growth area in the sense of, of the scaling from node to, um, to rack to the rest of the uh, to the uh, rest of the data center, um, you know that again now is focused entirely on CXL. So we we have the unification and focus of the industry now. So I guess Ishwar, we'll ask you this. Let's put this in some more technical terms. What does CXL do, you know, to alleviate some of those challenges and pressures that Kurt was talking about? You know, obviously. There's a sort of an infinite need for all three, compute bandwidth and, and IO. Um, what are we solving here and how are we solving it? So the way to think about this is um, we have uh, great IO technologies today, um, great IO interconnects today in the form of PCIe. And PCIe is the de facto industry standard uh, and it's been scaling super well in terms of speeds and feeds, um, especially over the last four or five years. Um, and that provides all the bandwidth and connectivity you need for all kinds of different IO devices, such as uh, SSDs, NICs, accelerators, et cetera. So then where does CXL come in? Well, what happens then is if you look beyond what the traditional, you have a class of problems that PCI does not address. Um, and that's where CXL comes in. Um, and CXL really brings with it the capability to have two, two unique types of, uh, of of devices, devices that are coherent accelerators and devices that add to system memory. So coherent accelerators are these, these beasts, these, these class of devices that are um, dense computation, uh, tightly coupled, um, uh, very high performance uh, devices that really want access to system memory in a cache coherent manner with the rest of the cores in the system, right? Uh, those devices may or may not have their own memory. And if they have memory, we really want that memory to look just like system memory so, as, so that the uh, interaction between the host and the device is super efficient. That's the, that's the accelerator types of devices. The other types of devices are these devices that contribute to system memory. And the types of devices that contribute to system memory is, is particularly interesting because you have now an interconnect available where you can augment whatever memory was there in the system on the DDR bus, right? You can augment that with additional memory on the CXL bus. 
It provides you an attach point for increasing system ban memory bandwidth, system memory capacity, as well as trying to attach memory media of different types that was previously not possible, right? So far, you're limited to whatever you can attach on the DDR bus, DDR4, DDR5, et cetera. But now you can, you can attach persistent memory, emerging memory media. You can, you, can, you can solve a number of memory bottleneck issues because now you, you open up the space to attach memory type, different memory types on the CXL bus. That's the, that's the technical strength of CXL. So Kurt, you mentioned um, you know, version 2.0, 2 um, obviously because you're moving so quickly. So what are some of the additions to the spec that everybody should be aware of? You know, I'm thinking of the, of the pooling capabilities, et cetera. Sure. Um, if you look at it, really uh, CXL 1.1 was sort of in node. Um, it was actually designed more for what we call the type one and two, the accelerator type devices. Um, the expansion with 2.0 really uh, was in that memory space. Um, so switching uh, was one of the single level switching was one of the things added. Um, so you can now go across and pool across multiple uh, memory devices, multiple hosts for that matter. Um, we also, and with that, we had um, a fabric manager to define, which you know does the operation and, and does that. Um, the allocation and provisioning of those different devices uh, for that matter. We also added persistent memory support where the persistent memory is sort of behind CXL. So it is it is not unique per vendor. Um, each vendor used to have to design you know, to their own bus or to GDR. Um, when you put it behind CXL, it, it can look the same across all the different persistent memory vendors. And then security, um, some of the uh, integrity and data encryption were added. So we can never get enough security. That's one that will be added over time. We will be um, announcing a 3.0 spec in the middle of the year. Um, so that's one where, uh, again, the Gen Z and sort of the fabric, the growth of, you know, from, from node to rack out into the data center is, is that expansion that, that expect to see and expect to hear more from us in the middle of the year. You know, I think that that notion of these pools of memory and different nodes is an important one because we're all we're all familiar with the concept of virtualization. But here, you talked about the fabric manager. Here, you're essentially able to partition your memory um, the same way you would partition a multi-core processor. Is that is that correct? Um, yeah, um, <laughs> pooling is like one of those uh, you know concepts that is like unbelievably interesting uh, to a data center um, type application. Azure just recently put out a paper in the public domain, um, and where it put out some data on the problems that we are facing with respect to memory. It, the paper basically summarized that up to twenty five percent of memory is stranded in a data center. What does that mean? It means it is that's the memory that is left over after the server scores have been rented out to VMs. So we have 25% of one of the most expensive resources in the entire data center that is stranded. That is a massive problem and an opportunity. One of the coolest ways, one of the, one of the, one of the nicest ways to solve this problem is to make that memory more fungible, make that memory more partitionable, uh, less less fixed 
uh, assigned to a given uh, server node and make it more assignable among a pool of server nodes. That's really where memory pooling comes in. And just like you said, Brandon, it's, it's, it's about being able to partition that memory and being able to assign that to different servers uh, and being able to change that assignment dynamically over time uh, through the concept of a fabric manager that has been defined by CSA. You know, in the past, a lot of these uh, projects have been attempted using things like RDMA, um, which essentially is too much overhead and has um, is not conducive for uh, for load store type transparent uh, latency management. CXL offers a unique opportunity to be able to do that. Um, that's where memory pooling is becoming so interesting and so um, uh, so exciting for data center customers. So we're pretty familiar with the concept of a hypervisor. And so I'm trying to draw a comparison between the fabric manager, how that operates and, and what a hypervisor would do, especially in a context of a system that is going to have competing resource demands, right? And, and it may, they may be pretty hard. Yeah. So, so, so the, the, the difference um, is that the fabric manager, think about the fabric manager is an entity that um, lies at an, at an abstraction level below the hypervisor. Right, the hypervisor and the and the VMs and the OSs are are essentially uh, on a per node or a per host basis. The fabric manager is is something as uh, an entity that exists across multiple hosts. Right, so um, the way this thing works is that the fabric manager essentially assigns uh, slabs of memory from a memory pool to a given host. Right, and those slabs are usually very fine grained. Uh, quantities of memory, right? So that we can uh, assign them very efficiently across different hosts. Once a slab of memory has been assigned to a given host, um, it is now the host is free to use it just like it would use uh, any memory that is directly attached to that host. And so in that sense, that memory now becomes available to the host OS, to the to the hypervisor uh, to start uh, using, uh, to start allocating pages out of it and to be, alloc uh, to be assigning that memory to different guest VMs. Uh, that exist on a, on a given node. So all the abstraction levels uh, that exist today on a given host, the uh, host OS, the hypervisor, the VM, uh, second level uh, page tables, all of them work as is, right? So they are unchanged. Uh, the fabric manager, manager is, does, is doing this job, you know, sort of behind the scenes wherein the rest of the stack is undisturbed. So CXL is basically operating as would you say like a, an encapsulate, a capsule for PCIe packets or, or maybe the other way around, just eventually routing things at PCIe line speed with a little bit more intelligence? Yeah, it, it, CXL actually uses the PCIe electricals. Um, and actually, uh, again, as you come up, uh, PCIe put in an alternate protocol, so that's what CXL is. We'll jump to the alternate protocol. We actually have three unique protocols, mix and match. .io is one to provision um, the board uh, or the add-in card out there. And then we have the .cache and the .mem protocols. The .cache is where the accelerator can use host memory and .mem is where hosts can use the card memory um, or the add-in card type memory. Um, so it's really unique protocols and they're all designed, um, well, IO basically is a repackaging with a flip format um, of PCIe. The .io, or sorry, .cache and .mem um, are designed with low latency. They actually take some of the PCIe stack out and they, they were designed with, with lower latency in mind. So 
again, they're unique and you can tune them. You don't have to have all three protocols in your solution. You can do, you know, um, dot IO is required to provision, then you could do either dot cash, dot mem, or both of those. Uh, you mentioned, Kurt, that there's some, um, you know, work around security that's ongoing, and then we expect another release later this year. Um, you know, what are the big things you see moving forward, you know, beyond the middle of this year for, for CXL? Who's involved and what's the uptake been like thus far? I know that there were some uh, demos you mentioned when we spoke before. Uh, it sounds like there's pretty good adoption. So CXL is, is um, up to 180 plus members today. We have basically, like I said, all of the four uh, major CPU manufacturers. We have cloud providers, all the cloud providers. Many are all the uh, system OEMs. We have all the IP providers to, to do that core infrastructure. And more and more add-in card um, designers and companies are, are, are joined. The one that we're light on right now is sort of the end user class, but I believe as, as products start hitting the streets, they'll become more involved. Um, so the way CXL is set up, we have um, our promoters, which are on the board. Um, that's not an open class to everybody, but we have two, two that are contributors and adopters. Contributors can actually sit on work groups. Um, we have about five or six technical work groups, and that's the, those are the people that are working on the development of the next specs, be it 3.0 or beyond. Um, so again, that's that's a way for folks to get involved. And yes, we've you know if you look at 2019 to 2020, it was you know first the spec, then IP, then demos. We showed demos last year at OCP at FMS and at SC21. And if you go to the www.computeexpresslink.org, you can see those um, demos out there. Um, and this is the normal progression of, of, a, of a consortium. Um, this year you'll start seeing product and so on and so on. You know, technically speaking, where do you see CXL growing and evolving? So uh, uh, it's a super interesting, um, you know, uh, we've been working on this uh, on, the, on the next generation of CXL for a year, year and a half at this point. And one of the most interesting things is that we're going to be um, trying to align to PCIe. Uh, you know, some CXL is already a PCIe uh, electrical, uh, you know, compliant, right? We already um, use PCIe electricals. And so as PCIe is moved to Gen 6, it's moved, it's doubled its throughput. Um, and it's now using uh, essentially 64 gigatransfers per second. Uh, which is doubled from its previous of 32 gigatransfers per second in PCI Gen 5. So CXL is going to follow suit um, in CXL 3.0. Uh, it's going to um, go to, it's going to double its uh, speeds and feeds. Um, that's going to be um, pretty revolutionary for CXL because now we are going to be able to attack uh, new classes of uh, technical challenges that we, you know, uh, for now that we are essentially have so much more throughput on the bus, we're going to be able to get to beefier accelerators, um, higher capacity, higher bandwidth memory, um, and be able to scale our protocols um, to that extent. There are a number of other technical aspects that we're not quite ready to share just yet. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I would say, you know, be tuned uh, as we get closer and closer to CXL 3.0, Kurt and others are going to uh, talk about more and more about the technical features coming with CXL 3.0. 
For more information about CXL, visit www.computerexpresslink.org. Next, Associate Editor Tiara Oliver investigates the changes going on in the world of software development. Increased development costs, time to market delays, and security vulnerabilities resulting from hidden bugs are perennial setbacks in the software engineering industry. But as technology and use cases evolve, the testers and developers who contend with these setbacks are adopting new approaches to dealing with them. Practi Test's ninth annual State of Testing report surveyed software developers on the current testing landscape. And this year, for the first time, the survey showed a large shift in the way software developers think about and use Agile and DevOps practices in their testing efforts. The report was distributed to testers worldwide, including test and quality assurance engineers, test leads, managers and directors, and test analysts. The majority of respondents were based in the U.S. and Canada and had more than two years of professional experience. The most notable trend in the latest version of PractiTest's state of testing report is undoubtedly that standalone test teams are shrinking as organizational dynamics change. Specifically, the number of dedicated test teams with six or more members has decreased by 15% over the last year in lieu of larger, more comprehensive, agile and DevOps teams. This new dynamic has caused a domino effect in testing, where many testers now identify as engineers. Correspondingly, the number of respondents who identify as engineers increased by 14%. By definition, Agile and DevOps seeks to support continuous delivery of software at high velocity and quality by integrating software development, deployment, and maintenance functions into a single collaborative effort. Testing, of course, falls into this mix as having developers and testers work in unison helps software mitigate the number of bugs discovered later in production and subsequent delays associated with testing by traditional means. In line with the migration to Agile and DevOps environments, more than half of the PractiTest reports respondents indicated they are shifting right in their practices to support ongoing maintenance of software deployed in the field. Not surprisingly, the increased frequency of feature and functionality releases led two-thirds of respondents to report increased productivity and collaboration in these workflows. Somewhat surprisingly, more than half recognize fewer bugs in production. Agile and DevOps practices are a marked change from traditional waterfall development models, which means that responsibilities and skill sets are also evolving. Quality assurance professionals who answered the survey highlighted API testing, functional testing, and scripting as important skills for succeeding as a tester in an agile organization. More than half of respondents also noted the importance of communication, coaching, and training other team members who weren't formal testers prior to DevOps consolidation. For Yaniv Eni, CEO at PractiTest, this improved collaboration between testers and developers is among the report's most significant findings. Testers are more involved in projects and are fulfilling the role of testing coaches within the development team, he explained. When viewed in that light, 
it's no surprise that nearly one in five hiring managers view communications and soft skills as the most desirable skills in their recruits. Some of the primary application focus areas referenced by developers included big data testing, IoT testing, and AI and machine learning testing, which were identified as either important or very important to the majority of respondents. For software organizations to keep up with the increased pace and demand of these use cases, testers, developers, and the organizations that employ them must be able to scale efficiently into new practices and methodologies. The challenges being faced by our testers are shifting as the practices followed by our organizations evolve with time, the report reads. This is not surprising and definitely not new, but what is surprising is that we continue taking time to adapt to these changes. Overall, we need to see this change as our golden opportunity to provide more value to our organizations. Thanks for listening to this edition of Embedded Insiders. For daily news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website, embeddedcomputing.com.